Hello, my fanist friends. Welcome to my podcast feed. Powered by ACAS Plus, here's a joke from my son. What did the bum say to the other bum? That's a bummer. You know, not for everyone. Uh, so, uh, look, thanks to everyone who's come to see the previews of Can I Have My Ball Back. It's been going really, really well, and uh, I'm really pleased with how the show's turning out. It's officially on tour now from Wednesday. I'll be at the Leicester Square Theatre. A couple of tickets left. Lots of press coming to that one. It'd be lovely to sell out, but there are a few other London gigs not selling as well. So if you're going to come to London... Maybe look up those other London gigs. And then this week I'll be in St Albans on Thursday, Gloucester on Friday, Chorley on Saturday, which is sold out. You can join the waiting list. And Glasgow on Sunday, two shows. I think the earlier show is sold out. Check with the venue, but the later show has some availability. Come along if you can. If you enjoy these podcasts and like them being free, then the great way to pay me back is to buy a ticket to a show or buy a download or a book from gofasterstripe.com. But you can just keep listening for free as well. That pays me back also. So, you know, no no pressure. But I'd love to see you there. If you just know me from the podcast and don't know me as a stand-up, I'm pretty good as a stand-up. It's a good show. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's only made about seven men faint so far. So, you know, are you brave enough to take the challenge? Let's sit back, relax and enjoy whichever podcast you're listening to now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very special Rahala Stupa. It's number 300 of the officially numbered ones. There's been more than that, really. Uh, it's got a very, very special guest, someone I've been wanting to get on for a long time. It was me! Um, and I'm interviewed by the wonderful John Robbins. Um, thank you to everyone who downloaded this early for uh, Refuge. Uh, we've raised, I'd say, at least £10,000 for Refuge, which is extraordinary. And if you want to see the bonus 30 minutes of emergency questions that is not being podcasted or put out on video... Why not head to rahalastabud.co.uk slash 300 and you can still download and buy that uh, whole show um, and give £8 to Refuge, which would be marvellous. So uh, please do that if you've enjoyed the 300 episodes and not given anything before, if you have a little bit of spare money or if you just want to donate to a fantastic and very important and sadly necessary charity, Refuge, um, rahalastupa.co.uk slash 300 also on November the 5th my book 
The Problem With Men is published. I can't believe it. I've written it in lockdown. It's quite a little book. It's only 25,000 words. It's lots of fun, but hopefully it'll make you think about some stuff as well. What is the problem with men? I don't know. When is International Men's Day? You'll have to buy this book to find out. It's available from all great bookshops as an audio book, as a regular book, and as an e-book. It's not available from like actual bookshops in two of those forms, but you can get it online. You know where you get your books from. You can choose. If you want to support your independent shops, that's fine. If you want to support GoFasterStripe.com, they have some copies with a special badge and a signed book plate with a cock drawn on it as well, if you wanted to get it from GoFasterStripe.com. Um, please buy it. Uh, I know you're going to enjoy it. Uh, the audio book version is great as well. We have a exclusive interview with Deborah Francis-White. Uh, Alistair Green is reading the tweets and there's a few little bits and pieces of extras in there as well, including uh, some Twitter exchanges with people who think they can beat, uh, get a point off Serena Williams at tennis. Look, it's a lot of fun um, and I would love it if you bought it. But, uh, you know, if not, just sit back, relax and enjoy this fantastic Rahala Stapa with me, Richard Herring, as the guest. Worst guest ever. And Series 20 starts next week. I can't believe we've been recommissioned. Hello and welcome to John Robbins' Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast from the Bill Murray. Or, as the cool kids are calling it, Jorora Hustler Puffer Buttum. And I have to say, some of the cruder cool kids are also calling it Jorora Hustler Puff Front Bottom. Um, my guest tonight is a comedian, podcaster, writer, presenter, snooker player, consecutive number plate spotter, fundraiser, blogger, stone clearer, emergency questioner, twitch trailblazer, ventriloquist, playwright, and overly optimistic theatre empresario. <laughs> A man perhaps best known for playing himself in Series 1, Episode 4 of Enough Rope with Andrew Denton. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Richard Herring! Oh, it's weird, I'm on, I'm on stage right. You're on stage right, yeah, Richard. It's weird, first time ever. Out of your comfort zone. Oh. Um, first question before we get into this, How, how's it... Looking at the odd reflection. Pretty good. I mean, I, this is sort of what I'm doing at home, is looking at myself <laughs> as I talk to you. I'm quite well aware of what I look like. Uh, as I will just turn my phone off, it would be embarrassing if all the, the calls that I have came in. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm quite used to that. Yeah, it is sort of weird. Yeah, I, I like it. You, it's sort of like I need to impress myself and the audience. Yeah. Uh, and I'm looking sort of sternly back at me through we, this perspex. So the people who are listening on the audio podcast, there's a perspex screen in oh, front of fuck. us. Oh, <laughs> fuck, yeah, see, that's, the, that's next-level expertise. Uh, we are performing in front of a perspex screen, um, which also acts as a kind of barrier to any fluids. Well, this is probably the most dangerous audience. This is the most obsessive fans of this podcast to get them in one room, the chances of me being murdered by an obsessive fan are strong. So this might deflect some of the yeah, it's projectiles. A bit like, uh, we're the, the salad in a harvester. Um, 
and this is to stop you sneezing. Or yeah. I think let's address the elephant in the room: jizzing. Jizzing. There, there will definitely be some jizzing. I'm sure that many of these people have masturbated whilst watching me on Twitch. Yeah, that was That's that was the, that was the non-laughter of recognition there. Many hands uh, <laughs> up in the room there. So. Um, uh, I want to start, uh, Richard, by talking yes. to you about your book. Oh, yes. Uh, your book, uh, which the uh, sub, subtext is, subtitle is, um, When is International Men's Day? Why does it matter? Yes. Um, and I have to say, before we get into sort of more jovial uh, topics, I was I found it very moving. And uh, it's sort of one of the few things... I've consumed in 2020, which has sort of left me with a sense of hope. And also, it's lovely when you read something where someone has been able to put all the things that you can't, in your own head, that you can't sort of corral into an argument. They put it in either a book or even a tweet or an article. And you can kind of go, well, I've now got that. (laughs) If ever I need to say what I think about something, I've got it in a handy guide. Um, But one thing that wasn't clear from the book, uh, which I wanted to ask, um, is when is International Men's Day? Because I didn't... It wouldn't be allowed, would it? I I didn't feel... It was strange to read the book, and at no point did you address when International Men's Day is. So I wondered if you could clear it up for us. (laughs) When when exactly? Or even if there is one. There isn't one, and if there was one, it wouldn't be allowed. Yeah, and it would be on. It wouldn't be allowed on November the nineteenth, is my guess. <laughs> right. Okay. So <laughs> that's that's cleared that up. Yeah. Um, a really interesting th- thing you talk about is how when is International Men's Day is like a microcosm of a lot of other things that have gone wrong in this year and the previous yeah. sort of few years, and how perhaps even in a very silly small way, it's sort of a, a forewarning of culture wars and... Yeah, I, th- I think it is. I didn't really... You know, it was really interesting writing about this because obviously I've just... Every International Women's Day, I've just uh, searched for the term and answered the question and, that, and, and had a lot of arguments for, uh, increasingly from both sides because there's uh, some feminists don't like me doing it and a, a lot of meninists don't like me doing it. Uh, but... Um, actually doing it this year was really weird because so much was going on at the same time and and especially I think as I well the COVID stuff and the male reaction to COVID the male leaders reaction to COVID seeing it as a war and the female leaders generally sort of seeing it as something that had to be (laughs) addressed properly with science and and doing a better job than the male leaders that seemed to encapsulate something but obviously all the Black Lives Matter stuff as well I sort of you realized how you know, almost. I started doing this in about 2011. I'm not quite sure when I started doing it. But sort of Do about. you remember the first time you heard the phrase, so when's International no, Men's it, Day? it was just... I noticed it, as did a few people on Twitter, that you're on, you'd get International Women's Day and this would crop up a bit. Then when you searched for it, you realised it cropped up an awful lot. But I think I've maybe seen other people even pointing it out. I don't, I don't remember even starting doing it. But at the time, it seemed like, this, these are just silly men and let's take the mickey and it's, and the joke is it's not even against international men's day the joke is there is an international <laughs> men's day it's as simple as that so people think they're being clever and so you tell them there is one and then it's like oh it's just having it's being deflated if we were a stand-up comedian and came on stage and went when oh so when's international men's day there never would be one would then someone there is one it's november 19th you'd have to go yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> good is, well good is it, is it the, there should be <laughs> is it the perfect richard herring joke <laughs> 
I think maybe it is because of uh, you know because it's repetition. It's trying to find <laughs> it's trying to find different ways of reacting to the exact same thing. Uh, and it's doing something over a very long period of time. Not like Stuart Lee doing it for 20 minutes, <laughs> doing it properly, as I taught him, but they didn't learn <laughs> over several years. Uh, and then finally how that gets... It does get exponentially funnier, less funny, funnier again. Uh, but, yeah, I think within that stupid thing, that it, I, in the book I think I compare it to, like, uh, you know, Inter- Wednesday International Men's Day is the soft drug that leads you on to asking, what, you know, what, what, what about white lives? What do white lives yeah. matter? Don't all lives matter? Uh, when's, when's White History Month? Uh, and, you know, I, I, think, I feel like 10 years ago you wouldn't have needed to address It's got worse. I think 10 years ago if anyone said when's White History Month, I'm sure they did, you'd have gone, oh, fuck off. So this is quite a big question. Yeah. But what do you think it is about white men, usually, but not always, who see anyone else having something as some kind of thing being taken away from them. So it, it, falls, it, it touches on so many different debates, so like trans rights and black rights and women's rights, yeah. that the idea that a man who has been part of the status quo for, say, forever, for the history of time, a white guy is unable to see that raising awareness for people who have different experiences of the world is enriching for them as well. Yeah, well, that's what I think, you know, people... Well, that's what they, cl- they, they don't say, claim to understand, is obviously if they're in- a lot of the men who are advocates of International Men's Day, which they aren't really because they don't know what it is. And, and, and I didn't really know what it is, and having written the book, I kind of think, well, these guys don't understand even what it, what it was about. You can find out about it in the book. Um, but, you know, they, are, they say they're advocates for equality, and they're going, well, actually, it's men who are... The society sex against men because of this and this and this. And if that's true, and it's true in certain cases then equality will help those people. So that's what they don't realise, that they're fighting the same... If you're fighting for equality, you're fighting the same battle. So if you manage to help everyone have an equal... uh, you know, something like mental illness, the equal health for mental illness, that will help the men who are supposedly um, uh, more likely to commit suicide, though actually the figures are women are slightly more likely to attempt it and men are slightly more likely to succeed. So it's fairly even on the suicide one. (laughs) So that's good news, right? uh, Well done, everyone. Um, but yeah, I think it's people are threatened, and that's and, and when people are threatened, they sort of strike outwards. I think, and and, and they and they don't want, uh, you know, if men really believe these men who are worried about it really believed in themselves, they go, well, what's you know, I'm com- I'm so confident, I'm so men are this sort of weird dichotomy. I'm so confident, I'm so brilliant. Oh, but I don't want women getting an equal say because that won't be fair. Oh, because actually women will women will it'll be balanced the other way. And then, well, if you're so great, that won't matter either, will it? You go, um, yeah, no, yeah, no, it will still matter because they're, so, they're, you know, that, that overconfidence that men have and that we're sort of taught to have and encouraged to have um, is actually hiding the fact that we're uh, there's a lot of insecurity. Uh, men, I think, don't, you know, th- th- I really thought about this for the book and I, I, through lockdown, it was really weird writing it in lockdown. I had lots of time to think about it and a lot of things that hadn't even struck me when I've been doing it. But I think, um, you know, men, men are the only group who embrace their stereotype uh, and and sort of and back it up anyone else go this is what men this is what women like this is what uh, white people like this is what black people like people go no 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 but men yeah yeah no actually yeah i'm going to be more match i'm going to be more confident and the and male confidence uh when threatened becomes even bigger and then becomes more dangerous and you know and we've it's actually got to the point where those where what seemed funny in 2011 is now 
ruling the world <laughs> in 2020. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's worrying. And I just think, you know, the book is a very... It's a funny book, I think. It does cover some serious things. Um, and it's got a very limited ambition, which is that men no longer ask that question, right? which yep. has always been the ambition of this of this. But it's... Stunt. Not to blow too much smoke up your ass. I'll, I'll get to all the stuff you've done that I hate later on. But, <laughs> but it, it, it's very subtle because each chapter is like a little herring vignette. And you think, oh, this is just really fun. It's Richard being pedantic about stuff. And, and then you realise actually you're building to quite an imp- a really impressive argument, which is that it is in men's interests, more than anyone else, to dismantle the patriarchy yeah. because it's the patriarchy that keeps men at very high risk of suicide. Yeah. It's the patriarchy that stops men having uh, sort of in- enriched lives and it- it's the- in their interest more than anyone else, which I men, hadn't kind of like It's men before. who do all this stuff to men, right? And, and men back them up. Men back up the patriarchy more than anyone and most men do not benefit from it. The only people who benefit are the people right at the top who aren't going to war, who aren't working down mines. Uh, and, you know, yet men who, the, the men who get the worst lot of it will blame, you know, they'll blame women, they'll blame immigrants, they'll blame anything else other than the people who actually are responsible for their lives. And, and uh, so, yeah, if men could just realise that for a little bit. But I think it's, it's sort of about, I think with that thing, it's always about being a man trying to tidy up our own mess. You know? mm. That was... And some people didn't like the fact that I was making International Women's Day about myself by doing this, but it, I always felt like this needs to be a man doing it so that, A, women can get on with enjoying their day, but also because if a woman does it, it'll be a diff- you'll get a different sort of response. But I sort of just think, you know, men, the men who ask when's International, when's the International Women's Day make all the other men look bad, and I don't think it's the majority of men, but they make us all look like that, and then it makes International Men's Day look bad because you think this is only a reaction to International Women's Day, so you can't even do International Men's Day properly. And, I, and writing the book, I realised it's not that big a deal having a day. <laughs> like, these men go, when did it Men's Day? There'll never be a day. There's a day for fucking everything. There's literally... Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a game in the book where I say, you know, with your friends, get around and name a thing. And if you can name a thing that doesn't have a day, even a, bl- a little bit obliquely, you get a point. You have to Google it and find out. And there's a day for everything. So it's not a big deal. It's not recognised by the UN, which some men are very upset about. It hasn't had a Google Doodle, which some men... Where's my Google Doodle? You don't get a Google Doodle. I mean, it's so charged. And I ended up feeling like... I mean, I ended up feeling like a little bit sorry for the guys and also a little bit hypocritical because I want men to express their feelings. And what those men are doing is expressing their feelings. They're they're wrong. What they're expressing is childish and pathetic and wrong. But they are trying to go. Why? What about me? When's my birthday? It's that you know. It's that. It's that little. That you know. I tell a story in the book about going round to my next door neighbour's birthday party when I was six and throwing a strop because she won the past the parcel, which I clearly remember happening. And I'm still angry about because her mum was controlling the music, and I'm pretty sure, <laughs> pretty sure she cheated even now. But it's that impetus. It's this childishness, and and we should be allowing men to express themselves. But that's what International Men's Day sort of was meant to be about one of the one of the things it was meant to be about and it's been co-opted and lots of things you know the, i hadn't thought all these times people go well when's international day oh there isn't well it doesn't get celebrated in the same way and you go oh, well you know it's, that's and i would always say well it's up to us to to do that but then i kind of realized there's november there's Mo- the whole month of november <laughs> is november which celebrates all of the things these men say we never get covered it gets covered much more in the media than international women's day and that people get behind because it's fun and it's not 
It's inclusive, it's fun, and it's not about going, why? When doesn't it? It's just like, hey, come on, let's make this a fun thing. Steak and Blowjob Day is more famous than International Men's Day because it appeals to men. Uh, I found that quite disturbing, (laughs) is the wrong word, just kind of so bleak. (laughs) That that really is not my kind of humour. No. And it's just sad that that's kind of. I don't think that's actually most men's humour. I think it's. Can you explain what steak and well, blowjob so, like, is? Again, I, well, I, you'll know I tried to do St. Skeletor's Day, which is the day after St. <laughs> Valentine's Day, which is a day dedicated to hate and breaking up relationships, <laughs> which is the opposite of love. Which is, but then Steak and Blowjob Day is a month later, and it's set up by a DJ from America who wanted to have the antithesis because Valentine's Day is for women, apparently. <laughs> and so that if they have their day of romance... I mean, this is someone who doesn't understand romance or really does and is taking the piss. I don't know which is... Which is. Uh, the, the men like having blowjobs and eating steak. Now, if you play your cards right on Valentine's Day, you can have both of those things on Valentine's Day because you go to a restaurant and you can order what you like. And, and if you've done any... You, should, you, know, you might have to reciprocate, but you'll hopefully get some kind of... Something to get your, sexual you get your willy touched a little bit. <laughs> but it, it's... <laughs> I don't think that's actually most men's humour unless they're together. And there's, I think there's this kind of enormous cloud of groups of men that I've experienced in so many different arenas where when you take a man you might think is kind of like bullish and crass and sexist, you take them away from that group... Yeah. And you realise, oh, they love their wife, they love their kids, they just... It's almost like everyone's pretending. And if you could just get... Just say to everyone, hey, you know, it's okay to... To like love well, your partner, is, and I think that is. I think men are pretend. Men are pretending to be. You know, they're encouraged to pretend to be. You no, know, have not not have emotions. As kids, we're encouraged to feel that, and you're encouraged to rise above that that sort of stuff. I. But then, but within that, I think there's. I think there's an element. There's more of an element of humour in uh, Steak and Blowjob Day than the, the than in some of these things because it's sort of like it, it, it's trying to wind people up. Yeah. In a way that when the. Asking when's International Men's Day is an attempt to wind people up, but it doesn't work as a joke. So I think just if you look at them coldly as jokes, yeah. when's International Men's Day doesn't work because there is an International <laughs> Men's Day and it's on November the 19th. Whereas Steak and Blowjob Day is like an, is an attempt to... You could see it as an attempt to wind people up. In, you know, and, and I don't think anyone's you and, know, and also really what thinking you that's do what a, the day is. You, know. you address this in the book, but your humour over the years has at times been like childish and crass and sexist. And yeah. you make some sexist jokes in the book. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to ask, like, if I had seen, say, three of your stand-up routines from, like, the past 15 years, I would probably, and, and I would probably think you're quite an unlikely champion of, um, of women's rights and uh, the rights of people with learning disabilities or learning difficulties. But your fundraising and your... Awareness raising in those areas is insane. So what... And it's probably not fair to conflate the on-stage Richard Herring with off-stage Richard Herring, but, you know, a lot of yeah. comedians have problems with those, yeah. those dichotomies. Um, but where did your passion for those projects come from? But I think, you know, so I think those jokes that, that I had mentioned in the book, they're all coated in irony, they're all... And, and those shows... Are the, are the, I think what the shows that, if Twitter had existed at the time... 
would have been more problematic that you could have plucked a joke out of it. Well, you could still go back and do it. You could pluck a joke out and put it on Twitter, and people would go, oh, God, and this sort of happened a little bit to me in, in, with that, with, the, with occasional jokes. But if you watch the whole show, you go, oh, this is a show about a guy struggling <laughs> with the fact that he's 39 and, and doesn't know what he's doing in his life, mm. and actually this is all on him. The joke was always on me, uh, and, and that, you know, there was a couple of shows that were sort of angry and aggressive, but it was about that. It was about what was wrong with me. It wasn't about what was any of the, you know, you're playing around. I mean, the, the joke that I still would occasionally do about um, I'm not sexist, I've got a friend who's a woman, you know, I believe women should be treated as if they're equal. Um, that's, that's playing around with someone trying to be, do the right thing, doing it wrong. Actually came out of me saying that to my wife in a service station. <laughs> And realizing I'd misspoke, and oh, that's so funny. But I think a lot of humour does, you know, does it does come out of that realization. And, and yeah, and I, you know, I'm, and I've been going since the nineties. I think, like, given we that I was doing comedy in the nineteen nineties, the stuff was always always had a kind of understanding, and anything we did was a, you know, we were very anti lad basically cultural. Although we did again routines that I think you could take stuff out of context. Um, the what, what the thing is like people now, uh, you know, I've done this. The people will do search for stuff, and they go, "Oh, well, that's interesting." When you did that, all that stuff about Gail Porter, and then that's what made her try and kill herself, or whatever. And you go, "Well, a that was Stuart Lee, so <laughs> I didn't approve of him doing it at the time. He seemed to have some issue with her." <laughs> and B, you know, it was it was we were that was actually a response to the kind of loaded putting you know dolly birds all over stuff we kind of we were uncomfortable with it and i've always been uncomfortable with that sort of stuff so you know i think it's possible within your comedy to highlight issues rather than just going on and going hey come on let's all be nice mm. and you know and so i think i think it's sort of important i think again that's why this works this international men's day thing works is because i'm not you can't accuse me of being like terribly right on and pc you know i've grown a hitler mustache i've you know i've done lots of crazy stuff that if you <laughs> unless you bother to watch the whole show uh, but of course, you know, in a 30-year career, you'll look back and go, well, now, judged by today's standards, I wouldn't do that joke. I probably wouldn't do some of the material in Hit the Moustache, to be honest. Well, that was actually what I was going to ask, because you have been a defender of political correctness. Yeah. And I wondered when you did all your shows back-to-back, that insane thing. <laughs> <laughs> you did 10 shows, was it? I think it was more than I think it was 12, 12 yeah. 12? Well, 11 and a new one, I think was that, was the, yeah. Um... Did you, going back, think, I now can't do that routine or I can't... Did you tweak much of it? Because I have routines that I look back or listen to recordings of stuff I did maybe ten years ago, and it's not necessarily a huge chunk, but it's just a a word you might be more flippant with then than you would yeah, be yeah. now. I still think I did them fairly faithfully. I think some of yoga was just so long, I didn't have time to do it, and also when that was the only one that genuinely annoyed me, and I felt... Um, just, lots of it's great, and it's one of my more popular shows. But it's just I feel like the first half went on too long. Given the second half was going to all be about yogurt, yeah. it was four or five routines that were designed to test people's patience. And now, as a parent, I just listened to it as a parent. Thought if I'd paid money to go and see this show, I would fucking hate this guy. Really? because that is my night out, and all he's doing is deliberately trying to annoy me. And I just felt like the last ten minutes of the first half. I could have done without just because I'd like to have gone to the bar. And so I think I did less of, less of it. Because, uh, but um, I, I actually thought nearly everything worked. Um, there's, I think actually in Hitler Moustache, using the racial epithets and saying that it doesn't, they're just words and if, you know, it's a, a stone isn't a weapon so you throw it at someone else. I sort of agree with that, but I don't think I would 
say the words as much as I right. do. Or maybe I don't think I'd say the words at all, but I, you know, I, I, I'd use a routine where I'm repeating the, the, the P word over and over again. But it's making a good point, I think, but I think it's not, it probably now in hindsight it's not, wasn't my place to make it. But I feel like in the noughties, and the, I think a lot of uh, comedians are finding this in the zeros, whatever you're going to call them, um, there was a fo- sort of feeling we'd gone the next level. You know what I mean? It felt like, oh, we've sorted everything out, so now we can start you know, moving on and, and looking at this in, a po- in an ironic and postmodern way. And I just think we were wrong about it. There's lots of people doing, you know, th- that's, that's the 2007 kind of era, 2010. That's the era that people are picking twi- tweets out and going, look, Sarah Silverman said this about paedophiles. Well, Sarah, you know, I don't know why I'm picking on Sarah Silverman, but she also, <laughs> did, black, she also did blackface. But, you know, lots of, lots of comedians thought, oh, we, now we can do this because things have moved on. And I don't think that was, you know, and then it, clearly that had not happened. Okay, So I think my Hitler moustache is... Not a great transgression in in that sense, but I was I, that was the out of everything that was probably the only thing that I would now think twice about. And do you do you think we're now beyond the? There was sort of a real tense time this year when an awful lot of stuff was being searched through in people's sort of back catalogues and tweets, like you say. Yeah. Are we now past that, or is I don't it think still? So, but I mean, it's, but I also think like. Comedy's got to be, you know, I think comedy's got to have context, right? And I think the danger is, so like, there's a lot of things within that blackface argument that were, you know, why the hell was that allowed? But then there were other things, like in uh, 30 Rock, there was a few examples that things were taken out of 30 Rock. And you go, no, but that was, that joke was about that subject. It wasn't blackface in the same way that um, Bo Selector was blackface. It was, you know, th- this was making, this was commenting on the subject and it was, that was a show that was really understood race and, and was happy to play around with race. And so I think the danger is if it, when people just have a pad and they're ticking off, oh, they said that word or they've done this thing, then there's, there's no... And, that, and that's the problem with censorship. When we did, when we did the Fist of uh, Fun DVD, the second series, the BBC suddenly got really heavy on uh, censoring stuff because of, it was about the time all the, the, the problems were coming up. And they, you know, they started going, well, you can't do this uh, teacher sketch, obviously, because of what's happened in the news this week where a teacher had run away to France with one of his pupils. And you go... Well, A, this DVD, this sketch was written 15 years ago. B, it's not coming out for another year. You can't just judge what's happening in the news this week. Is there anything coming out this week? Because the news never stops. <laughs> yeah. So, and, you know, it's not about, it's clearly not about this case because it was written 15 years before this case. So, you know, if someone's going through and they said there's no, it's, it's, uh, the, we can't have an argument. There's the first thing they said, it's, that's, there's, there's, no, uh, there's no argument to be broken. We said, well, there is an argument, and we argued about it, and they kept it. <laughs> so, because it was crazy. But that's the problem when you get a censor who's just say, who's looking for a word or looking for a thing. Mm. But the problem with, you know, but then that means you, with this one, Rich Not Judy, we got things that should never have been on TV because we didn't say the words or do the things. We just came at it elliptically and did things that were much worse than the things on the list. <laughs> so, you know, that's why censorship is stupid. So I think, I mean, I, I, I think expression, freedom of expression is still important. And but also people, it's it's great that people are saying no, I'm not, I'm you know, I'm not going to accept that joke or what. Please explain this joke to me. But the danger is you get people who've decided what a joke is, and um, and won't if you then explain it, won't won't listen to your explanation and go no, no, you're joking about this, and that's the danger. You just but, get. But also you get quite a lot of people. Uh, railing against censorship who have never once in their life experienced it <laughs> and you kind of think you're, you're doing all these like interviews about how bad censorship and how pro-freedom of speech you are but you're putting on a show every night at an arts festival where you can say whatever you're, you want yeah. and charge for the 
wary being well, censored. That's the, not, people aren't being censored, and pretty much no one's being cancelled as far as I can see. Um, I think you, know, you get, as a comedian, I've had this all through my career, you'll get someone coming to you after a gig angry about a joke in it, and, you, and it's uncomfortable if someone's, if someone's furious with you. There was, the, there, was the, uh, there was a Madeleine McCann joke in, uh, probably that was Hitler Moustache as well. <laughs> Uh, but it was but the point was I said I've written a joke and it's I don't think I can tell it and the audience going oh and they go no well I can't because it's about Madeline McCann oh go on go on tell it I said look well I really don't want to tell it but if you if everyone agrees that they want to hear it the majority says it so there's a thing about and then I tell it and it wasn't that bad a joke but someone came up to me furious afterwards and said yeah how dare you joke about that and they go well you didn't I didn't hear you say no I didn't hear a single person say don't do the joke and I told you had the chance so you know it's it, that, that, it, that's, you'll, you'll upset people with comedy, sometimes correctly. So, you know, when I did uh, Lord of the Dance City, probably the most mainstream joke at the start of the show about how I'd misheard the phrase Lord of the Dance said he is Lord of the Dance City. 30 seconds of the show, a woman stood up, furious, shouted, walked out, how dare you, how dare you <laughs> joke about hymns. <laughs> and left and left the and the show was called Lord of the Dance Set Tea anyway so it was it was so she on thought it was just a coincidence <laughs> that it was like the hymn yeah and so you know you can't you can't you can't uh, uh, you know. but you you were very eloquent uh, when Ricky Gervais used an offensive term for yeah. someone with uh, learning learning difficulties. And yeah, but I only said think about. I just I'm not think, saying like there, there is a danger. You go ah, but you, but what? But you did this. <laughs> but, I only, but, but actually, all I said. But you no. Know, but then I've, t- I, you know, I've been attacked from every single side on on loads of things. So that was that was probably the worst Twitter mob I ever had. All I said, I wrote a blog where I said we should think about these. I used to use them. You know, if you go back to Lee and Herring, uh, I I would have, I'd have done the same sort of thing. Right, I was doing little uh, jokes and I was using some of those words. And then I realised that they didn't like like Ricky Gervais. It doesn't mean that anymore. You know, it's just what kids do in a playground. And then I realised that was incorrect. (laughs) And I I said, well, you know, you're allowed to use whatever language you want. You're allowed to say all these words if you want to. And lots of people do say these words on stage. But just have a think about whether it's worth it. Was was Ricky Gervais, you know, tweeting every morning, "Hello, Mongs." Was that worth? The uh, hurt it was causing was it a good enough joke? And I mm. just didn't think it was. But that's all I did. And then he, you know, he retweeted that. And then I got three, literally three days of t- not being able to read my Twitter because it was coming by so fast. But if I did read it, it was people calling me a mong, which sort of proved my point. Because <laughs> he was saying, "You spastic, you mong." I thought Ricky Gervais said these words didn't mean that anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I think it's sort of there's a, a balance between a comedian is allowed to be clumsy, but also is allowed to be made to justify what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. You're allowed to be sort of held to account. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I think a lot of comedians um, mistake someone being offended with them being silenced. You have yeah. a right to offend someone. You have a right to be offended. And you have a right for the offended person to say, I find that offensive, yeah, yeah. of you to say, I don't. But equally, you know, you're, you're able to make these points without, you know, people go, oh, you're so PC, you're, you know, that's why I'll get to the other side. And they go, well, just look at any of my other work. So that's what you, you know, that it's, it's, and I think that's why, so Christina Martin, who's a, a comedian and a friend of my wife, said that's why she always felt that like I was the right person to do this international men's day thing, because you can't, you can't go, oh, it's one of those, it's just one of those guys saying you can't say anything. And they go, look, you know, you can say anything you want, and you, and it depends on the person saying it, depends how they say it, depends on the context of how they're saying it. There's so much more to it than, and, you know, you can be, you can be cheeky and say exactly the wrong thing, 
if you're the right person, you say it in the right way, it's fine, it's funny. And if you're the wrong person, you say it the wrong way, it's hideously offensive. It's just much more complex than, than people are prepared to make it. Well, this is turning into one of the more intense <laughs> episodes of John Robbins's Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast from the Bill Murray. It is. It's always been up to now. Yeah, and I know. coming in this one. I thought our 300th <laughs> Jura Rehustler Perfabutum would be so intense. So I've, I've taken uh, the liberty of asking people on Twitter and Instagram for some emergency questions that they've always wanted okay. to ask you. We're going to do um, more emergency questions afterwards, which is a special, as ever with Richard, you never just get the product. You get extra <laughs> stuff with, with sort of the labyrinthine way of accessing it. Um, but there's going to be an extra half an hour of emergency questions for people who have performed some Sisyphean task in it order is, to access it them. It is. The terrible task they perform is, to, I think, to pay £8 to yeah. refuge. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, they, then we will. It's a 300th episode. It would be lovely if people wanted to give some money to charity. It, as always, nearly everything goes out for free. But yeah. uh, uh, it's for charity, this extra bit at the end. But so there, not yet. So the, we will do some emergency questions in the main chat. And this first one um, is from a, a, a guy I've never heard of. Um, Ellis James <laughs> and his question is what sort of problems did you encounter being the slightly more chilled out one in a double act um, <laughs> it's a double act's a very complicated thing I've been in a few double acts uh, I don't know if I'm really, I've ever been the more chilled out one really but it's um, uh, I think it, I, I'm fascinated by double acts and I'm fascinated by ones that work and I'm fascinated by the ones where people remain on good terms mm. Um, uh, and it's not always in, and many of the ones that really work the people aren't on good terms you two seem to be pretty good friends but it might all be pretense well we're sort of reverse I guess we're like a reverse Lee and Herring because right. we started as friends <laughs> yeah. and individual comics and it was ten years later that we did anything together really sure. so we had that dynamic that had kept us friends for ten years sure. um, I, I asked Adam Buxton what he, when on his podcast I said, you know, because this was the time when Ellis was getting an awful lot of roles <laughs> and an awful lot of programmes, and I was basically only really doing stand-up and the show with him, and I said, what's it like when your double-act partner sort of goes away and has success? Yeah. And he said, well, I can't really give you a glib answer to that because it's, you know, it's very strange. How have you, how have you dealt with... Cause, Stuart looms large, even yeah. in asking people for emergency questions. Yeah. It, is it strange that you're sort of connected to him in some way? And that I mean, it's, sort of, it's odd in the way that we worked together for 10 years and it's 20 years since we really worked together. So that's, that's I mean, it's a testament that people enjoyed the double act. Mm. I don't think Stu really enjoyed the double act. So it's, it's good that people still remember it because I think it annoys him. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, I, actually, weirdly, um, I felt it was... I, I was really pleased for the, for the success. It sort of, it, we both was, had a sort of breaking out sort of 2002-ish, 2003-ish time where Talking Cock and um, Jerry Springer both did really well. Um, and so it didn't feel like too unbalanced. Obviously, then he sort of became the sort of most successful stand-up. But I was never that interested in being a stand-up. I, I was becoming a stand-up at that time, which that made it slightly awkward because it was... The thing that annoyed me, I think, was only when uh, journalists would sometimes say he's clearly influenced by Stuart Lee. And you would kind of go, 
I mean, you know we were in a double act, right? So there's every chance the things that are similar between us came from me or came from both of us. So that that I found weird. But because I wasn't... He always wanted to be a stand-up. And that was the problem, I think, at the heart of the double act. He didn't really want to do a double act increasing as it went on. He was allowed... He, he could be more uh, blasé about it than he was because I was so keen to do it that I would do all the work and he could you know, he could say, oh, I don't really want to do it. And he knew that he, he sort of had that power to... You know, there was an imbalance in it because uh, I guess even... Even then, he would be—he was more successful as a stand-up the first time when we did stand-up. I didn't like stand-up, and then we did the double act, and but he always had this kind of slightly superior attitude to me about that, which made it hard. The thing I was going to say that, that about him, I think, that sums him up was I remember early on him telling me he was obsessed with comics and stuff, and he told me about the creators of Batman, I think, and he said um, uh, there was this story: the guy who, who's, who owns Batman, he he created Batman with someone else, and late in his life. He saw that guy on a park bench. He had nothing. The guy had co-created Batman, and he had all this money from Batman. And, he, and I thought, oh, so the, you know, the, the story there is, you know, that would be awful if that happened. I think that was aspirational. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what I, the only thing I can hold on to is as long as I'm not on a park bench, Stu's still angry. <laughs> so uh, that's as any success I have annoys him. And I was genuinely, I genuinely, I thought it was great because he, that he was successful and he wasn't such a dick to begin with uh, <laughs> when he was successful. <laughs> and because uh, he gave you hope as, a, as someone who was doing something creative that, that that could become like a bit more mainstream than, than just being on the stand up circuit. So I, 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 I wasn't massively struggling with it. I was more struggling with what, what am I doing? Mm. Uh, I'd invested a lot in the double act, and like you know, I'd put everything into the double act. I wasn't really the character from the double act. He was much more the character from the double act, so he could move that on. I had to reinvent myself, and I had to get. It was more of my personal journey of having to go back to stand up, which I'd hated, and and then discovering that I did like it and wanted to do it and sort of preferred it. So it was, you know, that's it's a weird thing that people do that, and people still say, "Do you want the moon on a stick?" And I go, "No, that was that was Stuart, like the Gail Porter thing. That was Stuart again." <laughs> uh, and <laughs> Uh, but you know, it's also I, I don't I, I think interviewing Michael Palin. I've said this I think subsequently, but um, he was just so delighted to talk about his, even his most successful things that he must have. You know, I talked to him about the you know uh, uh, crucifixion. No, yeah, one cross each other. He started doing it. You know, he just started doing the the, the sketch. He's really pleased about the sketch being popular. Do you, do you so think... I'm happy that people remember the remember the double act stuff. The ones who do. Uh, and, but that uh, sounds like Michael Palin's very much at peace with himself. Yeah, I think. But it, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, it's it's sort of weird when people go on about someone all the time. But it's but I don't, you know, I don't feel. I feel we've both, you know, we've gone on done our own stuff in our own way, and I, I'm actually a lot happier with what I'm doing. Stuart would like to be. Stuart's got a sort of. Except I didn't want to be a stand-up. I was always into comedy. He was always into music. So I've actually been more successful <laughs> than he has because he is not a successful musician. <laughs> and he could not make a living as a musician, but that is what he would really like to do. Because do I, I'm making a nice living as a comedian. Was, this is my job. This is my last question yeah. with regards, Stuart. Was there a period when he sort of went through his golden age of slagging off comedians in his routines where those comedians would contact you about it because you were sort of more approachable and they'd say, what the fuck's up with old man Lee? Well, it was weird. It was weird. I mean, I just In the way that you're, uh, someone might be yeah. yeah, yeah, but you know, it was. But I think he felt that was, you know, I think that was 
he always worried about that weirdly the other way around. If I ever said anything in interviews, he was worried it would rebound on him. So he was always like very controlling and wanted, you know, and was he he, he was. When I look back at it, it wasn't a particularly happy time. We worked very hard. We started off as good friends, but it was difficult. You know, we were young, and it was it was hard work. And he wasn't that nice to me. But I think I was I was a bit of a pushover, like in relationships generally, and and people could take advantage of that. And I wasn't. I was insecure, and I was you know annoying. I think as well. But I think he was sort of he wanted to be a cool stand up, and I didn't. And that goes back to the Oxford Review and me being heckled, and if. So we have this weird thing where he, he wasn't there that year, but then he became a stand-up and it was and I wanted to do sketches, and if all you know I think subconsciously it would have felt like a betrayal to me because all the people who'd made my life actually hell in Edinburgh he was he would rather be friends with them you know he'd rather he wanted to be one of them, and so I think that's where there was always that we were always pulling apart. What's which the, I think was what's made the of, story about that? Well, I just we went as the Oxford View in '88. And it was just at the point where stand-up alternative comedy was the main thing, and the Oxford Review was seen as this privileged bastion of whatever. And so basically we just got booked to the Lane Live and heckled by all the comedians who, who decided to put all their anger into some 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, children. Uh, and it was very, you know, that as someone who wanted to be a comedian, that was very hard for me to cope with. Uh, and, you know, I thought, this is a big thing I've got into the Oxford Review, this is amazing, this is sort of everything I wanted, and then it was horrible. It was really horrible. Um, and so I think we, you know, we were battling against that. So, and we were kids, you know, we were kids all the way through our relationship. So I, it was, you know, it was good that we did stop working with each other. Uh, and I was, we were better friends for not working with each other. It's some, it's some, in recent years, I'm less good friends with him again. But I, I think that was he was he he was doing lots of stuff where he was being very helpful and seeing the industry has been very uh, sort of champion of people. And then he sort of started doing these routines against comedians. And yeah, I think a lot of, I think he didn't understand. Or maybe he did, I don't know. But he didn't understand that he was a higher status than he thought he was. He thought he was still the lower status comedian having to go at Russell Howard or whoever. Um, and Russell Howard loved to be Stuart Lee, you know. That, so it was it, it, it was it was harder on the comedians, I think, that he criticised than he realised. So I, I sympathised with them, and I thought it was a bit weird. But I was doing I was doing slightly similar stuff, I guess, at that time as well. So, it was, you know, I'm not... I can understand why he wanted to do it. But it was... Um, yeah, it's, you know, but it, it, it makes me look nicer by comparison. I'm not that nice, <laughs> but it makes me look nicer within the industry by comparison. <laughs> Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. <laughs> okay, another emergency question. Like, I've written some of these. Yeah. And you're allowed to, if you ever write another emergency question, Can I put this in? you're allowed to put them in because yeah. my first one, I asked you when I did the show with Ellis, that didn't get into the book even though Richard Osman got quite a few mentions in there. Um, I one about, would you rather have a million pounds in 50p's so you can only spend them as 50p's or 200 grand in your bank account? Which is quite a good emergency question. <laughs> Excluding family members, yeah. would you rather live with everyone you've ever slept with or sleep with everyone you've ever lived with? <laughs> um, well... Yeah, it's great. Well, it, neither option is very nice. No. Um, I think it'd be interesting to meet everyone that I'd ever slept with and live in a house. <laughs> could it, <laughs> could see how they got on. And it would It'd be, have to be a big house, John. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> could it be done as like a sort of big brother type, bubble type? They're all in the house and they have to realise what their connection is. <laughs> and then you. And when they walk in, you walk in, and they all make that connection. How long do you think it would take if everyone you'd ever slept with was in the same house for them to realise what the connection between them was? I think probably quite a long, long time. I mean, I suppose the thing is, like, the the main ones might know each other, and they go, hold on, we, you know, you've been, yeah. The ones I sort of went out with for a couple of years, Yeah, which was before my... I met my wife was my I think maybe 18 months might have been my record before I met my wife and now it's like 13 years it's crazy isn't it yeah um, what's that about um, but uh, yeah I don't know I, I hope that doesn't happen but it would be but it would be interesting it, but to, if it did and then I rekindled it with all of the <laughs> so I had to work my way through starting at the beginning again so you would rather live with everyone you ever slept with than sleep, sleep with everyone I've lived with yeah with. because I've mainly lived with you know but you might have lived male with male friends. But you might have lived with some women who you fancied that didn't sleep with. I don't think I did. I mean, I'm sorry to the, any women I've lived with. <laughs> I don't think I did. Okay, that's good. Yeah. That's good. good I think I mainly, when I mainly stayed with. We moved to London. I lived with Stuart Lee, and that, so that's immediately. I don't. That's a no no. I mean, uh, it would we've already been be there. a hell of a Kickstarter for that. <laughs> Only fans. <laughs> so, yeah. How? What figure money yeah. would convince you to sleep with Stuart Lee, the the, the, the man, not the comedian, not yeah. the character? And <laughs> what figure would convince the the man, Stuart Lee, not yeah. the character, to sleep with you? I don't think either of us are interested enough in money. What a hundred billion pounds? <laughs> yeah, I don't think. I don't think. It's like when that woman sold a story about sleeping with John Prescott and she got like maybe 50 grand for it. I was just thinking, yeah. why are you spending that money though? You just happen to think what you did for it. Yeah. So even if I got 100 billion pounds and gave it all to charity, as I was giving to charity, I think. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think, um, 
I don't think it would happen. There was a point where we were, we're, we're both very anti doing adverts. Now let's cut to an advert break. Uh, and I've, 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 I've acknowledged that the medium of podcasts needs adverts to survive. Uh, but there was a point a few years ago where I think John Lewis just asked if they could use our photo in a, an advert for televisions that were going to do double acts through the ages. It's no endorsement. It's just like our pictures would be in an advert. I'm surprised they even asked us, and they were going to pay us three grand each to do it. And I said, I don't really want to do it, but what if we just took the money and gave it to charity because it's not? Mm-hmm. And he went, no, because it's an advert. But it's not like going, I'm Stuart Lee, and I endorsed John Lewis. Or whatever it was, and now I've just endorsed it anyway for free. But it's, it's, <laughs> I do like John Lewis. I, th- I think it's quite good. Yeah. The staff are really friendly. <laughs> but it's so tricky because where, you know, how str- strongly do you impose that law? Because come- a comedian is advertising themselves. Yeah. As soon as you do a show and have a poster and a ticket price, you become part of that hypocrisy. So how sort of, yeah. I mean, I just think, you know, but I think the reality is it stems back to Bill Hicks. We've talked about this before. But I it's, think but Bill it's, Hicks but is rubbish. But I think, it's, <laughs> I think he's but rubbish. It, it, it does make sense in terms... I think it, I can understand it in terms of, like, big, a big Hollywood star who's already got loads of money just getting some more money to shovel into the pit. Yeah. But that's not what anyone's doing now, and that's not what, you know, that's not what this industry of podcasting is working no. on. You know, people are... Uh, and certainly I... I you know, ring fence it by saying, "Well, I'm putting all the money we make into making more podcasts." So that's I'm not paying myself with it. So it it um, it feels justifiable to me. But you know, I think the me, the 25 year old me, would feel disappointing that we are immediately going to now cut to an advert. <laughs> I think someone told me the, the one I was talking to Mark Watson about it. Or we met. I think even in the middle of the the Bill Hicks bit or something we were talking about, it cut to an advert for McDonald's or something like that. <laughs> the first week we had adverts. And I kind of thought that was, that was probably Bill Hicks. But there is, a, there, is a, there is a sort of quite an unpleasant assumption that, com- that, that creative people, in order to be good, need to be poor. Yes. Whereas I don't think that's fair. And that's what keeps an enormous amount of creative people really unhappy for a very long <laughs> amount of time. Whereas actually what I think creative people need is to have to struggle to get their things made because that makes you work harder. It makes you argue for the project. It makes you re-edit and redraft. But it's not about then at the end of that process going, it's a bit bit, uh, tasteless that you weren't you've made money off. You wouldn't say that about someone who'd invented (laughs) an amazing thing. You wouldn't say we should sort of... Well, it's true. I think that's true. And I think the problem is when you get people who uh, have the power to get whatever they want made, which is sort of what you're hoping to get to, is, again, very rare for them to put the work in because they don't have to, which, again, I think Stuart really does put the... You know, that's why his work ethic is very admirable and his dedication to creating uh, great comedy is, is very admirable. And he, you know, he didn't... He hasn't sold out in that sense... Uh, but like other people, you sort of go, oh, well, you know, here's another series. So you, people like you and I, you've had to struggle to get whatever stuff we're going to get onto TV, onto TV and fail to get stuff on TV. You kind of understand how hard it is to push a project. And that, I think, does make you better as a, a creative person. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll segue from that onto this. Um, so you've, you've created a persona of a sort of overlooked outsider, but I went on your Wikipedia page and I was sort of trying to put your CV for the introduction to this. Yeah. And it's completely insane. It's like beyond the wildest dreams of any <laughs> comedian starting now. Uh, five TV series, thirty episodes, including 30 episodes with Stuart, 10 radio series, 10 books. 
You won five total awards. That's true. Um, Only the internet award, though. Does that count? Yeah, that definitely <laughs> counts. <laughs> and I wondered, is it, does it become harder to maintain that outsider figure, the overlooked person, when things actually... Are, you've got an amazing career. I yeah. mean, you're on Taskmaster at the minute. I am. That's very nice. Well, the, Taskmaster feels like, to be honest... That I could give up after doing Taskmaster. How, just out of interest, yeah. how, how did you get on Taskmaster? Well, the first episode's been out, and I won the first episode, so that, let's but just how, talk about that. But how, <laughs> did you, how, did you, how did you get on? Uh, I, I was, I, what advice would you give to any aspiring... How did I get on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, how did you get on the... Um, to, what, I think, uh, I don't think it helps... Can I... I don't think it helps to, to, to try and beg, which I didn't ever do. Me neither. Um, I just said I'd like to do it, yeah. but never directly to them. Um, I think I knew I'd be good on it. You know, I knew I'd be good value on it. So I think I'd be good. I think you'd be good value. You know, I think I think you will get on. Do you really? Yeah. Hmm. Um, what do you know? When approximately? When? No, not series eleven, I guess, because that's already been filmed. Oh unless, my god! Unless you're being very clever about revealing, not revealing you're on it. Um, no, it's you know it's great. But yes, I, you know I think it did have to change. I think when I started doing Rehearsal to Put, it was. Week, uh, and I said it right. Uh, but. Um, you know, I think it it did feel a bit... I was interviewing people who were way more successful than I was in terms of in movies and stuff, which they still are uh, more successful than me. But uh, it quickly, I felt like, you know, I can't carry on doing that. It didn't really quite work. I remember when I interviewed David Mitchell the first time, when I listened back to that one, I saw it just comes across... You know, if there's, if there's always been a little... I've always been winking at it, you know. I've always been... I've always, always been a little wink. But it's... Um, you know, it becomes more difficult, yeah. But then you just move on to something else. So now I'm just, you know, now I'm just a, a middle-aged man having a breakdown. But, are you but, it, but and so, but it, but I am still making all my own stuff. And like, so it's easy to spin that as that being bad compared to say someone on TV. But anyone who thinks of it logically will go, no, this is way better than being on TV. I'm in complete control of everything I'm doing. You know, TV is not. Is, is not that big a deal anymore. You know, it's not, it's not, it's a dying medium. It's not, you don't go on TV and make millions and millions of pounds anymore. Um, you know, it can lead on to other things. So, you know, I, I am aware, as Rich Tate, the real person, that well, where I am, I'm much happier than... I think getting into podcasting was just absolutely game-changing for me just because I, I would, I'd rather stuff was going out and be paid nothing as I was for the vast majority of the time I've been podcasting than... Uh, be writing stuff that I'm paid for that doesn't get made. But also, so you, you, you then, you, more than anyone, were you to suddenly, say, be a regular on a panel show or whatever, it would kill your connection with your audience because, and this is from experience of people I know, not personal experience, but can't start turning up to your gigs. <laughs> and you can't take that back. You can't have yeah. a sign on the door saying, if you've seen me on this show, don't cut. You're not allowed, because yeah. that's a horrible... <laughs> that's a horrible person uh, to have to cunt. be. Just have a think, are you a cunt? Yeah. You can't come in. But they never um, think they are. No, exactly. They don't and it realize. makes you seem like more of a cunt. <laughs> I kind of want to have it both ways. I want to do the show and have my perfectly crafted, nice little audience. Yeah. But you know that's true, and I, they, and and without blowing smoke up, these these are the twenty main people from the audience. <laughs> I mean, they're not as nice as the normal ones, but they, but people. When I do previews and you split a preview with, so you're doing a stand-up gig, the people I preview with generally are you know newer comedians, and they can't believe how great my audiences are in terms of being listening. <laughs> Uh, but also having good comedic taste. So it's worth doing the pre... They're not going to laugh at everything, but if you're doing a good joke, 
they'll laugh and they'll be appreciative. That I've got a very very nice audience. So yes, I, it is, I so it's you know it's absolutely experience. it's absolutely you know I don't think doing Taskmaster will affect much, no. but um, you know yeah it would be something to consider. But then I you know I, I don't want to be I'm not saying I'd never do like a panel show regular thing, but. It, I, I watch it and I sort of think, what's what are you getting out of this? You know, yeah, I mean, maybe some money, maybe some exposure, maybe more people come see me on tour. But it's not a creative thing for most of them. It's not, you know, it's a, it's just a, like doing a job. And I didn't get into this to do a job. Okay, got get into this to try and, you know, push back the boundaries. And so by being able to do podcasts and be able to do sort of weird Twitch streams, I mean, I'm loving you know the the. Twi- I don't think Twitch would have happened the same way as it has without lockdown. Uh, a because I think it really the mentalness of what I'm doing sort of suits lockdown as well it sort of it feels like a reaction to lockdown which it isn't because I was doing all this stuff before <laughs> but uh, it was part of the the dementia of dummies but you know it's it's that's an amazing place to go hey look I can just you know I can I, I wonder if I can actually do ventriloquism if I if I just do it I'm not practicing in the, in the interim it may be obvious to you I'm not you know but I'm not writing it but I'm can I improvise like an hour every week with some you know dolls and a carrot <laughs> and a dead, a dead wasp that I found, and you know, and it's not bad. I don't, you know, I think it's good. I think it's, a, but I don't know because there's no reaction. So it could be. A lot of people just think the stuff I'm doing on the more obscure podcast is just insane. I think it's really good, but you know, I might be actually mad. I think stone clearing's the the best thing I do. So I want to talk about stone clearing, and you can I... hear from the cheers of the people in the audience how so... they agree with it. <laughs> I, I can ask, before I talk about yeah. stone clearing, I want to ask another emergency question. Okay. Um, this is just a really good question, I think, from okay. D- Dave Cakes 113. Oh, yeah, oh, Dave Cakes, yeah. Have you, uh, who's the funniest person you know outside of comedy? Ooh, well, it's hard, because Christina Martin, I think, is the, funny, was the funniest woman in the UK. She's was a stand-up comedian, and Doesn't she count. writes okay, and she writes for Viz. They've, they've got to be proper civilian. No one. There's no one. Really? Funny. There's no. There's no one funny. I try to think. There's. There's. I mean, yeah, nearly everyone. I mean, even the people who make me laugh on Twitter have got some connection usually to to it. But it's. I th- I do find like with a lot of these guys on on Twitch and stuff. So a lot of the a lot of my audience, I think, have. When you look at the comments, you go, oh, that was a good idea. Or, you know, so I'll read some of them out. So I think a lot of the people who are watching my stuff do have a kind of good inventive streak in them. So I guess, who you used to do? Was there someone? So you're not someone who goes, oh, no one will ever be as funny as my mate, you know. Not, I mean, not. I don't, big idiot from school. Because, Sorry, I just couldn't think of a nickname <laughs> then. But, the nickname but I came people say big that, idiot. You know, there were sort of people who you would think, yeah, they were funny at school, but they're not as funny as the comedians. The, the comedians I know are really fucking funny. <laughs> I mean, they're really... really I mean, the Greg, professional... I mean, Greg Davis, but even, you know, Greg Davis is just like the funniest man. Bob Mortar and Greg Davis thing, even out comedians, they're just unbelievably off-the-cuff hilarious all the time, yeah. certainly when they're working, and nobody is as funny as that. So no one's as funny as comedians. Even you, John, not, there's no one even as funny as you. <laughs> um, so stone clearing. Yeah. Now I have to admit, I'm late to the stone yeah, clearing you've revolution. Yeah, you've got to get in in the ground floor. But, so I've listened to... You can't listen to loads of them at once. I've listened to a few stone clearing episodes. And I'm, I don't mean this in a disparaging way. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like, it is 
so stupid. Yeah. And in any other comedian's hands, it would be a one-off joke podcast, or it would be an hour silly Edinburgh show. Yeah. But the only reason it's funny, and it really, really <laughs> makes me laugh, it's because you've done it, been doing it for years. <laughs> two years, only two. Yeah. But what is it about you? Because there's quite a cliche about like the comedian who hasn't got an idea for Edinburgh, so they pick an insane kind of um, task, mm-hmm. a complete sort of fake straw man type idea. And they, I'll do that, and then I'll do a show about it. And they're usually not very good because you're up against shows who are you know, their topic is life and the world. So if you're, you're kind of narrowing your horizons yeah. so much. But because you have done this stupid <laughs> waste of time for 90-odd things, yeah. it becomes impossibly funny. Yeah. And you, I'm, I agree. as a comic, I'm listening to it, waiting for you to kind of wink and pull the rug out, <laughs> which any other comic apart from Richard Herring would do. Yeah. How important is it, A, so my question, A, <laughs> how important is it not to pull the rug out and not to undermine the thing you're doing? And I wonder what... what uh, so, B, yeah. two, I wonder if stone clearing is sort of the perfect example of your vision of creativity. That sounds a very highfalutin way of saying, but it... It is, seems so uniquely you, to the point at which I will start an episode, and if it's an episode at random, you put yourself in the position of someone hearing it for the first time, and you think, this could possibly be the most insane thing anyone had ever heard, or consumed, yeah. in all media, if they didn't know you. <laughs> you put on episode 73 of Richard Herring Stone. But I hope people do that. I hope, like, <laughs> I hope it comes, it's unlikely people are going to search for them that it will come up, but I'd like people who don't know who I am to listen to it and think it's... Real. I think it's got to feel like it's real because it is real. Well, it is. I was doing it before I started doing it as a podcast, so I was doing. And it. I believe that. Yeah, and I was, and I wanted to clear the field of stones, but I also <laughs> think it's a parody of uh, podcasting, so it's deliberately choosing the dullest thing possible and making it as if it's as if it would need to be taught. Yeah, as if there's anything more to it than you've got to pick up the stones <laughs> and put them on the edge. Um, but. I know, I think there's so many, there's themes in it, and I think it's, uh, and so like as a comedian, uh, it's a big challenge to me, and I don't prepare, I don't think about it at all during the week, I just... It's not I'm, scripted at all, is no. it? No, and so it's not <laughs> scripted, amazing, I've got a team of writers feeding me the information, um, and, uh, and like if I'm in a bad mood, I still do it, if it doesn't, if you know, if, if, if a recording goes wrong, I don't put it out, but basically... I think it was one a couple of weeks ago where I got... I, a, it did actually stop recording, I didn't realise, but I just kind of was quiet for about three minutes and thought, oh, God, this one's no good, I'm not going to do this one. Do you but, ever get people messaging you saying this week's episode wasn't really, like... No, I think do, people... Do they, people ever criticise your stone clearing? I don't think that many people listen to it, but it's, uh, a lot of people just used to go to sleep to. Right. But <laughs> I think there's, you know, as an artistic project, it's about man's in the impossible fight against nature, about uh, ageing, about wanting to be remembered, and, it's, and that's not possible. I've set myself a task that I would love to complete, genuinely, but is n- not possible <laughs> to complete. I've literally not even cleared the path around the field. <laughs> 
and that's mainly what I'm doing. <laughs> so, so the, the field is 35 acres big. But I, I, I love that you will have had that idea to do A, to do it in the first place, B, to make it a podcast, and unlike any other person on earth would have gone, what's the fucking stupid idea? You, you not only start it, but you commit to it but you've got to, it's got, to, it's got to be every week or it is just a stupid thing. But it doesn't but also, have to happen. I don't do it every it week. But, it's, but it just, if you stop, the, what makes it funny is the fact it's not stopped. That's, that's yes. the joke that, it, that goes on, that it doesn't, nothing really changes. Uh, but I think also within it, there's times in it where you're spouting stuff and you're just, you're just trying to, it's a, it's a stream of consciousness, some of it, and you come into something good and then you create a world. And so without thinking about it, it's about the paranoia of being observed. It's about the paranoia of do people know what I'm doing in the village? So obviously it's going out as a podcast. Somehow the podcast me thinks that, that the people in the village can't hear the podcast or that no one's gone, what the fuck is that bloke doing scrabbling around? <laughs> so, so I generally don't, but I genuinely, when I was doing it before I was doing a podcast, I didn't want people to know what I was doing. This guy, the guy who actually started the Ken, who sadly died since then. Uh, Mike, I'm not laughing at him. <laughs> I was very sad that he died. Uh, but he started the can, and he's the only person who sort of caught me, and he said, yeah, yeah, no, I just did that. It was sort of fine. But then the idea that people would be opposing it, the idea that everyone's opposing it. So there's all these things, and then the re- you, and you have created a religion around it, which is sort of the same as CMPS, but CMPS, I, which is the consecutive number plate spotting, but that nearly drove me mad. Um, I'm not surprised, uh, but I was a bit mad when I started doing that. But I'm pla- but I'm fascinated by that obsessiveness. And I took a test last week to find out if I'm autistic after watching. Um, um, I keep forgetting her name. The fantastic, uh, the Perrier Award winner, 2017. Hannah Gadsby. Hannah Gadsby. I, I don't know why I've, I can't remember the other, uh, other guy. Oh, I can remember her name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hannah Gadsby does as, as, as a show about her autism, and I, so my wife said, "Do you think you might be autistic?" And I said, "No, I don't think so." And so I took a test, and I'm not. But so I. Um, so, but but, read... I, but I'm I'm always obsessions obsessions interesting. I think. Uh, you know, there's times when we're all a little bit mad. There's times when we have mad thoughts and we do mad things. And it's it's about you know, it's I think there's more to it. I sort of see it as an art project more than a comedy project, but I do think it's funny. Sometimes. There's a there's a quote. It's my favourite com- quote, and I often feel it when I'm writing a new show or beginning something. And it's it's attributed to Goethe, but it's actually uh, by a, um, a mountaineer called Charles Aitchison Murray or William Aitchison Murray. Basically, someone said, "Why did you climb?" K2 or whatever mountain it was and he said um, until one is committed there is hesitancy the chance to draw back concerning all acts of initiative and creation there is one elementary truth the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans that the moment one definitely commits oneself then providence moves too all sorts of things occur to help one that would never have otherwise occurred a whole stream of events issue from that decision raising in one's favour all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance. And then it gets into the famous bit. Whatever you can do or dream you can do, begin it. Boldness has genius, power and magic in it. Begin it now. I think stone clearing <laughs> is almost a perfect example of that. And a lot of your projects fit that idea that it's the actual act of beginning something is the reason any of us do what we do and it's not necessarily it's not about whether you ever clear the stones but it's about that you're willing to take the risk to begin clearing the stones 
Because you have no idea what will happen as a result of you clearing No, stones. and I don't know where it was going. I didn't know what it was going to be. And it's become lots of different things as a result. And it doesn't matter. But also, it's given yourself permission to, not, for, to fail, which I suppose the blog has always been... I write a blog every day, and it does... You know, I sometimes worry about whether it's funny, and then think, look, it doesn't matter. Just write something, and if it's good, it doesn't matter. And it's the same with these things. And look, I, with the, I think the ventriloquism stuff is a kind of crazy experiment. And I, the first time I sat down, I thought, this is nuts. I'm going to get 10 minutes out of this. And, but I think the, within the three months I've been doing that, the creative energy in that with stuff I've literally improvised, characters I've improvised, you know, if one of them works, if one bit of it works, then, then it's something. And that's the stone clearing, I think. There's, you can't listen to that and think, mm, he's doing this to try and progress to something else. It's, it's, an, it's the end. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. an end in itself. The work is the There's work. Not, that's not going to be a film or a TV show. Might, I suppose it could be a book. Be an amazing book of mine. <laughs> so it's going to be a wall, is what it's going to be eventually. That's visible from space. But it would be but so Alan Partridge <laughs> if you secretly harboured hopes that it was going to be made into a film. <laughs> <laughs> but it's you know it's. I would like to make the wall. I'd like to make a wall visible from space. But like, I did have to pull myself back from it a little bit. So Isn't the problem that all the walls are visible from space because of satellite? Well, they are like they now are. Yeah, yeah. but I want someone photo. standing on the moon to look and say, "That's the only man-made object I can see <laughs> around that field in Hertfordshire." Do you ever have an idea for a project and dismiss it because you think, "Oh, if I get into that, that will destroy me." No, because I think generally speaking, I'm I'm fairly you know I, th- I think I I hope that I am fairly balanced and fairly serious. I think Greg Davis said something about you know he's I'm I'm a, a serious man who's prepared to be really silly, and that's that you know I'm actually quite a sensible man who's prepared to be really silly, and I think that's it. I'm quite I, I feel in my real day to day life I'm quite grounded. Well, when sometimes we were... I'm not. Sometimes I'm, I sometimes I feel like I'm waking up and if I'm drinking too much, I wake up in the middle of the night and feel paranoid and weird. And that's when, so every now and again, I think, right, I have to stop stone clearing, because in the middle of the night, stone clearing seems like too mad an idea, but when I'm doing it, it seems fun. But when <laughs> we were talking about stone clearing upstairs before the recording started, and you talk about your work with a distance that other comedians who claim to have a distance between themselves and their work don't have, you, you convince me that you're not insane <laughs> and that actually... There is a character, Richard Herring, yeah. who's clearing stones. But, you know, I'm not sure. So I think that's part of it is, and I don't think anyone's quite sure. So with uh, all the Twitch stuff, especially, I think people, you know, I'm getting, is it, are you having a breakdown? That's what, that's the, com- that's the comment. But I think people aren't sure. People are obviously watching it thinking this is nuts. Well, and a s- using a dead wasp as a character. <laughs> but in a sense, you are kind of having a breakdown because you've yeah. made 75 episodes of you clearing stones from a field. So you kind of, at both time, you're like having, you know, um, Schrodinger's breakdown. Because you're both, when you're clearing stones, you're both having a breakdown and not having a breakdown at any one moment. I mean, in a day, I worry about it, you know. But then, like, so I sometimes wake up, you know, when you wake up confused, it happened to me this morning, I had a couple of whiskeys, woke up at four o'clock, had had a weird dream, snapped out the dream, feeling weird. I've experienced enough to know it wasn't anything to worry about. But you sort of think, is this what, your brain becomes as you age. I think that's the. Mm. You see old people in. You know, when I went to visit my grandma in the hospice when she was near the end of her life, we went into the wrong corridor one time because the lift opened. It was two two floors, and the floor we went into was like bedlam, and it was just screams coming from bedrooms and stuff. And that's obviously where they put the people who were really struggling. And my grandma was quite happy upstairs, but had lost her mind as well. 
Um, and you sort of think that's what you know, that's the fear. I think I have at four o'clock in the morning is a. Am I in that state already and <laughs> just remembering this existing? But b. Is that what happens? Our brains sort of fold over in each other and just we and we you can't remember what happened where and and you sort of lose your sense of reality and it's sort of pain the the pain of mental illness. You know, I think it's I think it's a constant fear and that's why I think there's there's comedy in it because it's so traumatic and it will happen to all of us if we get to that age and so I, I find it fascinating I find that mad the madness that you have in your own life already the things that you consider to be normal things you consider to be not normal you know I don't think clearing stones from a field is any less mad than going to work and inputting stuff into a computer every day um, except that you're being paid for that so that that's what makes you think this is justifiable but it's just as meaningless and as meaningful I'm not saying putting stuff into a computer is a bad thing because I know that's going <laughs> to really lose me my entire audience. But it's, what I'm saying is it's the same as clearing stones off a field in, the long, of, in the long run. Well, it's, it's not the same in that there are a lot of people who would rather not be entering information. I'd rather not be clearing stones off yeah, a field, but, but someone's <laughs> got to do it, haven't they? <laughs> but you don't. No one else is doing it. Who's going to do it? <laughs> but there are. You d- don't have to do that, which I'm, I'm guessing your wife must have mentioned at some point, because I'm sure in, in her and your life together, your family life, you've got kids, you've got various deadlines, there must be a point where you've gone, can you take the kids because I've got to go and... I've got to go and clear stones. And she said, but I've got actual work to do, I Rich. Think, um, I think during lockdown, when I did it four or five mornings a week, <laughs> I think that I, then I said, I have to go about eight o'clock because I'm trying to build up an audience. Um, so I think there were times then she was less patient. But the kids, you know, we weren't going anywhere, so it was all right. We all... Has she ever said, no, you can't go stone clearing? She, no, but she don't, didn't she certainly disapprove. She doesn't like the snooker. There was a time when she came back early and I was playing snooker against myself in the basement. And, she, and I think she's on the podcast going, oh, you're playing snooker. And she didn't like it. But then got, I got onto BBC Two playing snooker against myself and got paid for it during lockdown. So... How long? Now. <laughs> it's only <laughs> 10 years of playing. If you put, it's, I've made £200 a year playing self-playing <laughs> on average. Um, I'm going to ask another emergency question. Okay. I need a Slytherin notebook. I've actually printed You do? Book. I meant to bring it. I've got a, I've got a new uh, notebook, but I meant to bring it for, for Never mind. Okay. Maybe we should uh, call that. The end of the. Well, should, we do, one. should we end on one? Okay, do one. Then question. I've got. I've got to get out and get my car in about uh, twenty-five <laughs> minutes. Oh, have you? Is it that late? Yeah. Okay, we will do one emergency question, and this will be the last one. Thank you so much for me having you on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> would you rather never have an erection again, or have an erection forever? Have an erection forever. That's, That's an easy question. Alex uh, Tate. Having been more or less reached the point where I can never have an erection again. <laughs> yes. I would very much like to have a constant erection. I think having a constant erection would be fine. Also, you know, it would be visible, but you just go, I've got a constant erection. Yeah, and you can't have a go at me because it's a... <laughs> it's a medical condition. It's a medical condition. And you can have a go at me if you want because I need some help. Yeah. <laughs> and you can probably adapt... Clothing. If it was going to be yeah. constant, you could get different trousers. Have a constant. Could have put a cod piece on top of it. Or wear a People. kilt. Yeah, kilt. <laughs> no, no. yeah. Maybe I want a constant <laughs> erection now. I, I think, think a constant. I definitely out of the two. I mean, to never have an erection again 
Again, that's the thing that you worry as you get older. It's not been a concern for me. <laughs> but as you get older, and that's why that's why there's all these adverts on TV for mm. those things. Mm. Men are very insecure about it. They often are above your urinals in uh, yeah. service stations. Yeah. Sort of. Uh, but you know, you're looking back to a time, as with all these things, it's what all this is about. You're looking back to a time when you had a constant erection and, and thinking that was great. <laughs> wasn't that great it wasn't that good no, it wasn't. your 20s were bad your 20s were bad almost certainly and that's what people are looking back people middle-aged men i think it does work middle-aged men worry me i look at some of the my friends and people on facebook of my age and what they've become and turned into and you know starting to believe conspiracy theories and going crazy and it's about losing power and that's what it's just about not feeling useful, and I think that's what you've just got to find. You've got to find your place in the world and be happy with your place, and I guess that's what I've learned to do a little bit. And the dream of would my be erection. if you could just decide when you had an erection. Yeah, that that's, would be better. That's not the science has yet to come up with a way of sorting that out. Okay. Richard Herring, thank you so much for being a guest on John Robbins' Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast from Hooray. the Bill Murray, or as the cool kids are calling it, Jura Hustler for Bottom. And do pay some money to Refuge. There'll be, yes. a, link. There'll be a link. And we're going to leave it up so you can get this extra 25 <laughs> minutes. And also me. buy Richard's book. Um, it's called The Problem with Men is. When is International Men's Day and Why It Matters. Yeah. And it is a superb book. Thank you. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, John Robbins. Thank you very much. Oops. Thank you. Thanks for coming out. Thank you to Bill Murray for having us. You have been listening to John Robbins, Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre at the Bill Murray Pub, but with John Robbins doing it instead of Richard Herring, with John Robbins and me, Richard Herring. Thank you very much to everyone at the Bill Murray Pub for their fantastic work in allowing us to do this. Thank you to Tom and everyone at Show and Tell who really helped us put this together. Thank you to everyone at Refuge for the fantastic work they're doing. Please support them, rahalastica.co.uk slash 300. You can still buy that extra 30 minutes of material and make a fantastic donation to Refuge. Thank you to Chris Evans, not that one, uh, who uh, also did some fantastic work in preparing this, as he always does. And thank you to the wonderful camera crew who captured um, the audio and video of this episode. I am indebted to them. Uh, this is a Sky Potato Fuzz on GoFasterStrike.com production. Buy my book, The Problem with Men, Went International Men's Day and Why It Matters. John Robbins thinks it's good, and so will you. So please buy it. Please donate charity. Please remember that uh, in November all your badge money, all your Twitch money will be going to Movember, which you can support with money at rahalastopper.co.uk slash Movember, lowercase m. Thanks for listening. See you around, my fan, fan friends. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks again for listening to the podcast, richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour or richardherring.com slash gigs for all of the information on the tour. Gofasterstripe.com for lots of downloads and books and lots of fun. Thanks for listening. Go and listen to another one. Tell your friends about the show. Tell your friends about the tour. I love you all. I'm out. <laughs>